You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. This is Revelation 2, 1-7. through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lauren. Church family, good to see you here this week. If I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here at Northway. So grateful you're with us. Um, we, as you can probably tell by now, we're going to start a brand new little mini-series. I, I communicated through a church email. We're going to take a, a continued break from Genesis. We'll come back to Genesis 12 at the start of January. Uh, but this fall, I wanted to do something a little bit different, and mainly because I've spent the last year uh, spending a lot of time just reflecting upon where our church is at right now, where churches around us are at, um, as I continue to just reflect upon uh, many of the countless leaders that I know who have stumbled and fallen in recent days, when I think about members that I've interacted with who are continuing to face um, many temptations and the influences that are around us as a church beckoning, these voices beckoning to us, and and uh, and then considering what it means in the day that we're in as faithful followers of Christ to truly hunger and thirst for his righteousness. And, uh, and I've spent some time rereading uh, the, the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches that were in the book of Revelation. I only had a chance to reteach them again this summer in Turkey, but um, all those things combined just felt like, I think, our need to hear Christ's words Uh, in the 21st century is just as relevant as it was in the first century. And so we're going to look at these churches that Jesus speaks to in the book of Revelation. Um, And I think as we walk through these over the next seven weeks, we're going to find that these churches are really unlike any in our day. They're very similar. These churches are surrounded uh, by a hostile culture that is ever growing more non-sympathetic to Christianity Uh, These are churches that are planted in cities that are filled with false worldviews and ideologies uh, that are competing against the biblical narrative that God has given to us through his revelation. They're surrounded by uh, a culture of pagan idolatry and pagan worship uh, where the culture celebrates uh, sexual immorality and rebellion towards God. Um, All these things uh, that were a constant threat in the early church of you better join us or else you're going to pay the consequences. And the temptations that influence the church to move away from Jesus. And uh, and so what I found is that Jesus, who loves his church, 
who gave up his life on a cross to purchase and purify this church for himself. He is going to write these words to these seven churches to encourage them towards faithfulness in a day of compromise. Some of these churches he's going to commend for areas of strength and victory that they've been walking in and that will fan the flame all the more for them to be even more faithful in the days to come. And some of these churches he's going to correct, even rebuke for areas where they have drifted away from Jesus, where they have uh, not shored up weaknesses in their faithfulness to Christ. And my hope and my prayer in this series is that this these seven weeks will serve to recalibrate, one, the truth that we have renewed in our minds that will recalibrate the affections of our hearts, that will recalibrate even the works of our hands as we consider what it looks like for us too to be faithful in a day of compromise. Now, before we even dive into uh, this first church, I want you to understand kind of how these churches worked, where they're located, and why these letters were even written, and what this was like, so we can understand what this means for us as well. When you look at a map of first century Turkey, which is modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia Minor, you can see that there were seven churches in the first century strategically placed in the western side of Turkey. There are churches all over, but specifically, there were seven major cities where there was a significant presence and newly planted churches uh, and gospel ministry there in Turkey. But they're not just in random. This isn't just some random circle. It kind of looks like they're in a circle there. What they are is they're on a postal route. These were major, this was a major road that intersected with other roads that created a postal route. So as couriers would deliver letters, this is the route they would follow. And so in the first century, the apostle John, he is in prison now, on the island of Patmos. Patmos is just off the coast, the western coast of Turkey, out in the Aegean Sea. And that's where John is when he receives the vision of, that is now the book of Revelation. And by the way, let's just do the math up front here. It's Revelation, not Revelations, all right? It's one revelation that's given. And he's there in Patmos. And so when he writes this down, it's not as if he writes seven copies of the book of Revelation and has a courier take them to all seven churches. It's one letter that is meant to circulate on the postal route. So the courier would go to the very first church. What's the closest city to where John was uh, imprisoned? It's Ephesus. And this is the order in which they appear in your Bible. It's gonna go from Ephesus, then head north to Smyrna, Pergamum, down to Thyatira, and all the way down to Laodicea. And it's one letter that would be taken before these house churches. It would be read to them. They would consider the words of Christ and then that letter would be rolled back up and taken to the next city and put before the next church. So everybody's reading each other's mail. And it's the reason is, even though Jesus has specific words for a specific church, every letter ends the same. Let let you hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. You're meant, even though you've got your issue you're working on, you're meant that to see everybody else because what affects one church affects all of us because we're all one in Christ. And in the same way, when we work through uh, these seven letters over the next seven weeks, I don't want you to think that you're just reading somebody else's mail, that you're just reading something in the first century to that church. What was written then 
is just as much written in Northway today. And so as we work our way through these, the hope is that each week, you and I would be able to do some, some good reflection and good introspection on what Jesus would be saying to us through these letters. Um, and maybe asking ourselves, and I think this happens both individually and corporately, like what are the areas where we would be affirmed right now in our following of Jesus that is embodying faithfulness in a day of compromise so that those areas can continue as they are and even stronger? And then what are the areas where, if we're honest with us, ourselves, we're wrestling with, that we've drifted in, that, that we might need to heed a correction so that we can repent so that more faithfulness can come in the days ahead for us. And I think we need to consider that both individually as well as corporately as Northway Church here. And ultimately what you're going to see is there is a, a chief issue with each church that is pointing them towards faithfulness. And here's how it looks. Here's how the next seven weeks will go. When Jesus writes to Ephesus, he's going to encourage them towards faithfulness in love, in the love of Christ. When he writes to Smyrna, he's going to encourage them towards faithfulness in the area of suffering. When we get to Pergamum, he's going to write to them about faithfulness in the area of worship. We get to Thyatira, it's going to look at what does faithfulness look like in our work? And then when we get to Sardis, what does faithfulness look like in the area of truth? We get to Philadelphia, what does faithfulness look like in the area of mission? And then lastly, when we get to Laodicea, what does faithfulness look like in the area of dependency in Christ? And so these are the seven key themes, and this is what we're going to wrestle with ourselves in this series, so that by the end of it, we might look more like Jesus, we might pursue faithfulness just as much in our day as was in the first day in a day of compromise. So let's start here, week one, with Ephesus, Revelation chapter two. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath a seat somewhere in front of you. That's our gift to you. You can take that home. Revelation chapter two. And uh, I think it's helpful and to understand additionally background for each church because the truth is what Jesus has to say, he is playing off cultural markers that were specific to that city and specific to that church, that every church would have known what he's talking about. And if we don't take time to understand those markers, some of this stuff's gonna go right over our head. And so I think it's helpful to understand when it comes to Ephesus, the background on the church of Ephesus, one of the things we know in the first century is that Ephesus was a major hub for Christianity as Christian, uh, Christian gospel began to spread. Ephesus was a major port city in the Roman Empire. So you have all kinds of goods and services and people coming in and out of this city, much like modern day Dubai right now, where it's just a crossroads in the world and everything's going through there. Even as Dallas is becoming that hub in the United States here in eight years, we're expected to surpass Chicago as the third largest metroplex in the US. It'll be New York, LA, and Dallas as these hubs where the nations are descending upon. And with that, there was no different with Ephesus. They were that hub and there was a significant outpost of a newly planted church that was there. But when you have this major port city and the nations are coming there, what comes with it are the nation's ideologies, the nation's worldviews and the nation's um, worship patterns. And this was happening in Ephesus. Ephesus, Ephesus became a really dark spiritual place. It was home of the occult, 
for lots of pagan witchcraft and incantations and magic spells. And uh, it also was the cult home of the worship of the goddess Artemis. In Greek mythology, most cities, especially in Greece, would worship Artemis as the goddess of the hunt. But in Ephesus, she was specifically and uniquely worshiped as the goddess of fertility. And so those wrestling with fertility, those wanting blessing on the family, on home, they would descend upon Ephesus to worship Artemis. And you remember in, if you know your mythology, uh, what the Romans did is they basically just copied and pasted the Greek gods and gave them new names and continued to worship them. So it's Artemis in Greek to the Romans, it was Diana. And they would worship her. And in fact, the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was Artemis's temple, which was like three to four times bigger than the Parthenon in Greece. It was massive. And people would come from all over to worship. Now, only to rival Artemis in the backdrop of this letter in the first century was the emperor that was ruling over Rome, whose name was Domitian. And there's a lot of Roman emperors. There's a lot of bad dudes. Domitian is right at the top. Um, he made Nero's persecution of Christianity look like Sunday school. He was wicked and he was not even tolerated by his own citizens, but Domitian demanded to be worshiped. He, he would sign off at the end of every letter that he would write with a Roman decree, his name as Lord and God and demanded to be worshiped. Um, he, in fact, he was so jealous of Artemis's worship in Ephesus that he was assigned Ephesus as Neochorus, which is a word that means temple keeper. It means you get the right to build a temple to Rome. And he had one erected in Ephesus so that they would worship him. The temple of Domitian was built right around the time of the first century, um, in the late first century into the second. And he built this temple and he would demand that people would worship him and pay tribute to him on their way to Artemis' temple. In addition to that, there in Ephesus, he wanted such sovereign control over the city, the goods that were coming and going because so much money was made on there. He required all citizens of Ephesus to carry a mark either on their forehead or on their wrist in order to have the privilege of buying and selling goods in the Agora, the marketplace there in Ephesus. This dude was so wicked that his own Roman citizens gave him a nickname, which was the Beast. This was Domitian. You get a little bit of the feel of the backdrop of this letter in Revelation. He was such in pursuit of sovereignty that he tragically had a son who died. And after his son's death, he wanted to deify his son. So he had his son's image minted on coins that were made in Ephesus with a picture of his son surrounded by seven stars, which was the seven stars of Ursa Major, which we would call the Big Dipper. And these seven stars, because it was emblematic of his son's deification of eternity, that he ruled and reigned over the universe. And so this was a man who demanded this. And that's why he didn't like the idea of Christians worshiping a God named Jesus greater than him. And so he persecuted them. In fact, many people think this is why John was imprisoned in Patmos is because it's possible that he actually contested Domitian in Ephesus and was imprisoned for it. But this guy was so bad that after Domitian died, his own Roman citizens issued a decree 
over Domitian as damnatio memoriae, which in Latin means condemned memory. It means you are erased from the books. In fact, if you go to Ephesus today, down the main street, you'll find this little deal. It has the name in Greek of several Roman emperors, but on the far left there is Domitian's. It's been scratched out. Because as soon as Domitian died, every city that had his name, they etched it out of the carvings as if you never existed. That's how wicked this dude was. And so that's the background there. Now, rewind the tape 30 years from Revelation. The apostle Paul goes into Ephesus in Acts 19 and sets up shop. Says he's gonna preach the gospel at the school of Tyrannus near the center square for a better part of two years there, heralding the gospel. So much so that we're told that All of Asia heard the gospel because of this. Paul is telling this pagan occult city about the good news that there's a God who loves you and who came to rescue you from your sin, gave his own son, Jesus Christ, on a cross for you. And this message so penetrated the culture of the city of Ephesus that many uh, prominent leaders, many magicians, And uh, other occult members came to the center of the city in in an act of repentance of their sin. And they burned their books of incantations and spells publicly to say, I'm no longer aligned with the occult. I'm aligned with Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. So much so this happened that it started taking a hit on local idol-making businesses Uh, A man by the name of Demetrius, we're told, who was a silversmith who made these shrines to Artemis. Kind of like if you're going over to Jerry World before the game today and you picked up a Dak Prescott bobblehead so you can worship it for good luck before you went into the temple. This is what they were doing with Artemis before they went in there. They would worship through statues. Well, all these people are coming to faith in Jesus. They don't need to worship that false God anymore. So these businesses start losing money. And they're about to have to shut down and go to another city. And they're mad about it. And this Demetrius guy stirs up the crowd in the theater to cause a riot over it. Now, sermon within a sermon for just a moment. Think about all the injustices in Dallas, Texas. Imagine what it'd be like if the gospel so spread through this city that the good news of Jesus caught on like fire throughout the city of Dallas, that you started seeing so many men and women repenting that they no longer needed to go gratify their flesh. And so prostitution had to pick up and go find another city because there wasn't enough clientele in Dallas. You want to see the city changed. You want to see injustices change? Preach the gospel. Go after the heart. Allow men and women to be captured by the grace of God and his love for us on the cross that no longer do we need to serve our flesh by worshiping these false idols, but turn to the living God, Jesus Christ. That's what's going on in Ephesus, y'all. It's beautiful. And so this church who under immense spiritual darkness begins with an incredible love, worship, and unashamed devotion for Jesus Christ, along with a ferocious commitment to truth and the power of the gospel. And now we come to Revelation chapter two, and it's been 30 years. 30 years later, Jesus writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. How has this church fared over the last 30 years? One other thing to note is as we go through these seven letters, every letter begins the same way. It begins with Jesus 
identifying characteristics about himself that apply to that background of that particular church and city. So the question is in verse one of chapter two, who is Jesus to the church that finds themselves in that place called Ephesus? To the church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we already know from chapter one, verse 20, that the stars represent seven messengers, which can be translated angels or pastors. Not sure which here, but that's the stars, the seven lampstands, or as they would be seen by Jews in this day, seven menorahs represents the light of the seven churches. So some think this is an immediate punk down to Domitian right out of the gate. To the church who finds itself in one of the darkest cities in the world, ruled by a dude who thinks he is God and sovereign over the stars and eternity, oh, be encouraged, little church, because I, Jesus, am the one who sovereignly holds eternity in my hands, not Domitian. And it is my presence among these seven churches that gives their illumination, that gives their light. And so he writes to them, how had they fared over the last 30 years? Notice right out of the gate, four areas they are immediately praised for. They are commended in, in faithfulness over the last 30 years. The first one you see there in verse two, I know your works or your deeds, your toil and your patient endurance. This is a church who in the course of the last 30 years has not allowed themselves um, to cease in doing good. The works of their hands have never quit in areas of righteousness, holiness, and justice. They wanna see their city reformed. They love to serve others. This is a church who is so committed to righteous works of their hands. Their justice bar is high. But not only the works of their hands, notice the truth in their heads. The end of verse two. Secondly, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you have found them to be false. This is a church who over the course of the last 30 years has not allowed themselves to be tossed by every wind and wave of doctrine that has come along. They have elevated sound doctrine and theological truth as it has been given in the scriptures. They have done what the apostle John asked them to do in 1 John 4, 1, when he said to test the spirits to see if they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. They have done what Paul said they were to do. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul pulled the elders of, of Ephesus together and said, after I leave, savage wolves are gonna come in from among you and try to devour the flock. You're gonna have to guard that flock. And they've done that. They have defended truth. They are committed to biblical truth and they haven't wavered in 30 years. But thirdly, in verse three, I also know that you are enduring patiently and have been bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. This is a church who in the course of the last 30 years hasn't quit on seeking the exaltation of God's name among the people. They are protective over Jesus's reputation, even above Domitians. They are willing to endure 
for the sake of the name of God in Christ Jesus. And then fourthly, if you jump down to verse six, you notice another area they're praised for. You also have this, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, Nicolaitans were like an early form of Gnosticism, believed that there was extra knowledge out there outside of God's word that you needed in order to have a life of flourishing. And they believed that you could compromise your faith in Christ or you could serve Jesus Christ and you could serve sexual immorality without it compromising. You could do both. Early church fathers believed that Nicholas, the deacon mentioned in Acts 6, six, got corrupted and became a cult leader. We don't know that for sure, but the early church fathers believed that was true and that this may have been where the word Nicolaitan could have derived from as well. But this is a church who, unlike other churches we're going to see in the letter of Revelation here, would not compromise on moral truth. They would not bend the knee towards the winds of a liberal culture that would pull them away from obedience to Christ in areas of morality. And they would not engage in synchronistic immorality as well. Now, all this being said, these areas that are commended, I want you to think about this type of church for just a moment. Sold out for the truth, willing to be persecuted for it, will defend the holiness and the glory of Jesus Christ at all costs. And they have done this consistently for 30 years. Now, what a church! Who wouldn't want to be a member of a church like that? Like, get me in the next membership class. I want, to, I want to enter in with this church right here. This is a beautiful church. And yet, Jesus says, of all those things that you're doing well, there's one thing that I have against you. And you see it there in verse four. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Think about that for just a moment. You have abandoned your first love. Now, just so we're clear, what is their first love that they abandoned? Well, the truth is, one, we saw a picture of it in Acts 19 when the gospel first came to Ephesus and everybody abandoned all their false idols to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ. He's their first love. But even John reiterates this. John, who's living in Ephesus when he writes his gospel and his epistles, John says in 1 John 4, the only reason as a church we even know how to love is because he first loved us. Their first love is Jesus Christ. And so that in mind, how is it possible that you could be so bold in your faith, so staunch in your theology, so firm in your doctrinal foundation, so zealous for justice and deeds in the culture around you, and yet not love the very one that you claim to be serving? Like, how is that even possible? I've shared this before, put this in marital terms, just to have a visual for this. Imagine a husband and wife in the covenant of marriage. Imagine a woman who has been married to her husband for 30 years. And they loved each other right out of the gate. They made their vows. And ever since, for the last 30 years, she has been staunchly devoted to defending the institution of marriage. She posts every day on social media all kinds of inspirational little memes and gifts about 
about the beauty of marriage. And she has all these, all these scriptures that she's laying down and pointing towards. And, and she talks about the importance of being devoted to your husband and talks about how serious the vow of covenant is and promotes and co- encourages marriage to everyone she sees, holds workshops to help other people to have a thriving marriage. And yet there's only one problem. She actually left her husband nearly 30 years ago. Like somewhere along the way, she ejected from that marriage. And yet she's still staunchly committed to telling everybody else how to have a healthy marriage when she herself has walked out. How is that even possible? You put this in church terms, how how ludicrous this is. Jesus says it's the same way with the church. And your staunch commitment for the truth about me Somewhere along the way, you've actually left me in the affections of your heart. Physically, you're still there. Intellectually, you're still there. But emotionally, no one's home. And you go in the church, how is it possible to have all those other things right and yet miss this one? And yet we see it all the time. At present in our own lives and at present in so many other churches as well. Like marriages that start out with this romantic fire, but then over time turn into butler and maid. They just go through the motions. Here's how this happens in churches. We call this, there's a word for it, it's called religiosity. And it's when you move from being originally stirred in your heart by what it is God has done for you. And somewhere along the way, you being more impressed with what it is you can do for him. And you turn these tables. Your life slowly becomes obsessed with rule following, detached from any affection. You're committed to externals, checking boxes, giving off personal appearances that looks like everything's good, but internally, you left a long time ago. And we become in many ways like a shell of ourselves and our faith, like the tin man from the Wizard of Oz that has no heart, but just goes through the robotic motions. And the reason I know that is because I've been there. I know many of you have been there. Some of you are there right now. And you know what exactly what that feels like to, to somewhere along the way drift from your first love. And so the question is, is when we find ourselves there, and probably not if, but when we find ourselves there, what do we do to get back to that first love? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus gives us three things here to this church and to us, starting in verse five. Here are these three, this threefold exhortation towards getting back to our first love when he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. Notice this threefold process here. Number one, remember where you have fallen. You're going to have to go back in time. You're going to have to do some introspection and start thinking back. Where was the last time that I felt myself so overwhelmed in love with Jesus? where I really understood his grace and it was washing over me like a waterfall. And it was just so joy exuding out of my heart to want 
to serve him all of my days because of who he is and what he's done for me. When was the last time you felt that way? And you're gonna have to find out what is it that caused your heart to derail along the way? In other words, you're gonna have to go identify who or what were the thieves that actually came in and stole your affections. And sometimes what you're gonna find is there are very hard experiences that contributed that. Maybe everything was good in your life until it was the loss of a loved one, until that breakup or divorce happened, and until that job was lost, until I got hurt by a church, whatever it may be, these real painful experiences that the enemy just used as an opportunity to actually grab your affections in the process and yank them away from Christ himself. Sometimes it's not even a painful experience. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's, it's great things that have been put in, introduced into our lives. Maybe it's the opposite of losses. It's the gains. It's a new relationship that came in and choked out your affections from the Lord and transferred it to another person. Maybe it's a, a new job that got, maybe it's a hobby you have. Martin Lloyd-Jones would always say it was when a very good thing in your life suddenly becomes a superior and ultimate thing that now steals your worship from your true source of joy and places it onto something lesser, that over time your affections increase for said things over here and less over Jesus. Sometimes it's very good things that become those ultimate things. So the first step, Jesus says, is you gotta go back and figure it out where that was. Once you've identified that, secondly, Jesus says, now you gotta repent. You gotta repent from the heart idolatry that occurred at that time. In other words, you're gonna have to identify those thieves, yes, but you're gonna have to break up with those thieves in your heart. You're gonna have to recapture, and that means turning away in the allegiance of your heart so that you can properly place your affections and return them to where they rightfully belong in Jesus Christ. Now, part of that process in repentance is called discipline, spiritual discipline. Discipline is different than legalism. Legalism is when you feel you have to do something in order to earn the merit or the favor of God. That is not what we're talking about. The merit and favor of God was given to you as a gift through Jesus Christ that is not earned or deserved. You have all the favor of God already given to you. You don't have to get on a treadmill and run to try to earn it back. It's been given to you. Discipline, therefore, becomes something different. It's now training your heart to run towards where you already know your greatest joy lies. It's the same principle when you going to a gym. You're not being legalistic. You're going there to train your body to do what you don't want to do in order to get what you've always wanted to get. Spiritual discipline is you taking the grace that's already been given to you, the love that has already been poured out for you, and you now training your heart because you know like the hymn of old, I am prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love, and therefore I am going to train my heart to run towards where my heart's greatest joy is found, and that is in Jesus Christ. And then once we have done that, thirdly, Jesus says, now go and do the works you did at first. Now, here's what's interesting. He already told them in verse two, I know your works. 
They're good. There's nothing wrong with their works. So when he says you need to go return to the works you did at first, the only thing that has now changed is the motive by which you are doing those works. Rather than simply doing good things because you believe that is gonna earn the love of God, it is now recognizing because I've already been given the love of God, out of an overflow, I'm going to go do those things. I'm not gonna do good works to get, I'm gonna do good works because I've already got. This is not an act of duty and martyrdom, this is an act of delight for the savior who loved me and gave his life for me. Go and do the deeds you did at first. Back in that day when you were so overwhelmed with the love of God, the thought that God would save somebody like you. And how would I not wanna pledge my life to that God for the rest of my life? Go and serve him out of that capacity. But he says here, there's an urgency in this as a church because there is a consequence if we are unwilling to repent. In verse five, He says, if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. To remove a lampstand from a church, it's menorah. It is literally to shut your church down. Remember, to remove one's lampstand is to remove its light. It's to remove its power and its influence that is fueled by the presence of Christ. If you're unwilling to abide in the presence of Christ and love him out of the love in which he's loved you, then remember, according to verse one, that that light gets extinguished now. If we walk away from our central adoration and affection for his presence, then he is the one who has the sovereign authority to extinguish that light by removing his presence from that church altogether. Now you may still have enough people left over in your church building to pay the utility bill, but the light of influence and gospel sustaining power has long since gone. And you can find churches all over our city that have these wonderful shells of buildings, but the lights have been turned out long ago of gospel influence. This is the, here's what the most ironic thing for me when I think about this letter. This is the church who lost their first love 30 years ago when their love was kindled. After Paul left Ephesus, he went back to Jerusalem. He writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. And do you know what the very last verse of that entire book is? Ephesians chapter six, verse 24 says this. This is how Paul closes out this letter 30 years earlier. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Literally translated, an unabandoning love. And then just 30 years later, that's exactly what they didn't do. They didn't hold on to that love, they abandoned it. My prayer for us here at Northway, and this is ironic because this message was the very first message I preached in view of a call when I came to Northway Church. And then a vote was taken on me as soon as we were done. We're not voting today at the end of this message. But I said it then and I mean it now. My prayer, my central prayer for Northway Church is that we would never lose our first love. As committed as we may be to loving our city, that love would never supersede our love for Christ. As committed as we are as loving the word of God, 
that we would never be more committed to it than we are of the love of God himself. As committed as we are, as committed as we are as to loving one another in this church, that we never be more committed than to loving God himself. All those other loves will certainly flow out of our love for God, but they cannot supersede it. And so what we're going to do at the end of every one of these messages is do a little introspection. And I got two questions. You've heard these before, but I think they are so relevant for this text that I think every one of us, if we took the next six days leading up to our next gathering, looking at the next church, we would just focus on these two questions. Number one, and they're what we call an affections inventory. The first question is what are those things in my life that when I do them, when I meditate upon them, when I engage in them, actually stir my affections for Jesus Christ? Like, what is it for you individually? What is it for us corporately that when we do these things, our affections actually get stirred for Jesus to where they rightly belong? And then secondly, ask the question, what are those things in my life that when I do them, when I dwell upon them, when I engage in them, they actually steal my affections from Jesus Christ? And I think it's a helpful tool. I do this regularly. I think we need to do this, especially now, of what are those areas in our life right now that when we do them, they, they, they stir our affections. And let's double down on those. Spending time with the Lord in the morning, maybe certain songs you're listening to, whatever it is, the gathering of the church, taking communion together, all these things that encourage us and lift our hearts, let's all the more double down on those. But what, likewise, what are those areas that steal? Is it the, the folks I'm running with right now? Is it the, the ideologies I'm sitting under on various podcasts right now? Is it certain songs I'm listening to? I don't know what it is for you. I know the things that are for me that we can sit and do some serious work and go, whatever those things are, I wanna break up with those things in my heart. I'm tired of having my affection stolen for Christ. I wanna put them where they rightly belong and I'm gonna discipline and train my heart. What it knows it believes to be true is that Jesus is my greatest joy. And may, in doing so, like the church of Ephesus, we would grow in our faithfulness, in our love of Christ. There's a lot of things that can kill a church. Nothing will kill a church quicker than abandoning our first love. May we stay tethered to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the encouragement, God, that you uh, give us through the church at Ephesus to know that this is not an issue just specific to them or specific to me or just a few of us. This is an issue that's specific to all of us. Because at any given time, we know that we, like sheep, are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. So Lord, for the good of our own souls, for the glory of your name, would you help us to recalibrate our affections by rightly placing them upon Jesus Christ? Would you increase our love and desire for you out of the love that you have already given to us so that, God, we might demonstrate faithfulness in this area in a day of compromise. The glory of your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.